Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 43. This is a, a first as far as introductions go. I am wet because it has been raining here for months in Palo Alto, seemingly without end. And for that reason, pins for the first time is not on my lap for this introduction. Now this, oh, but here she comes. Maybe, maybe she will be joining me. Anyway, I also just had a pint of ice cream for breakfast and that adds to my shivering coldness. But this episode is with Eric Schwitz-Gable, professor of philosophy at UC Riverside. And it was an extremely fun conversation to say the least. It was quite bang, bang, bang. Uh, he's really lively and, and full of all sorts of interesting thoughts, uh, fun thoughts, fun topics. He writes about uh, an incredibly, and I'd say unprecedented, unprecedentedly wide variety of material, as you'll hear. And in this conversation, we talk about an upcoming book of his about the weirdness of the world and the philosophy of weirdness. So we talk about why, if you're a materialist, the U.S. might be conscious. We talk about what Kant and cyberpunk have in common. We talk about evidence for an external world, whether ethicists are more ethical than other people, other philosophers, uh, just anyone you see on the street. We uh, One of the more fascinating and surprisingly thrilling things we get into is snail sex. Uh, and I, I didn't know that this could be fascinating. I, I don't think that I, I got up the morning that we had this conversation expecting to talk much about snail sex, but I'm glad we did. I, I listened to the conversation again before uh, preparing to do the edits and snail sex is quite enthralling. Let me just, I'll just leave it at that. So I think you are really going to enjoy this podcast. Like I said, it was just it was just so fun to talk to Eric, and I'm already really looking forward to having him on again at some point, so that we can get into the more of the near endless content he writes because he's just a prolific author. So, without any further ado, from pins and and I or me from pins and me enjoy this episode so you write about a ri a ridiculously wide variety of topics I'm afraid and so yeah yeah so because of this i suspect that our conversation is going to be uniquely disjointed compared to the others that I have, but I think that's a good thing. It's new. But first off though, so did you get into philosophy because it's a discipline uniquely suited to this? That that you can write about, you can dip your toes into all the issues you want. You've got the tools yeah, for it. That is a large part of why I get in, got into philosophy. I thought uh, for all X, you can basically do philosophy of X. So it's it's very free in terms of what you can pursue. As long as you 
whatever question you want to pursue, as long as you pursue it in a certain kind of intellectual way that tries to get at the core fundamental issues, in my view, you're doing philosophy. So I, 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 I stumbled across a manuscript you're working on. I think it's going to be coming out relatively soon. The Weirdness of the World. Yeah. And what does it mean to say or to argue as you do that the world is fundamentally weird and why is this a good thing <laughs> right so i mean something in particular by weird i mean it's get you it gets used in a lot of ways but i'm using it a little bit as a technical term where something is weird if it defies our kind of expectations of what's normal and readily understood and fits with common sense. So it defies like a, a folk theory. Defies a folk theory um, and is also um, difficult to understand. It defies understanding even beyond the folk theory, right? So it has to defy the folk theories for sure. But it also has to be in some way also epistemically elusive. Epistemically elusive. So um, I use a different term, bizarre, for stuff that justifies folk theory, but isn't otherwise elusive, right? So, for example, relativity theory, the twin paradox in relativity theory is this idea that time flows differently depending on what relative speed you're traveling at. Uh, it's actually even a little more complex than that, but we understand it quite well. Our satellites depend on it. It's very well confirmed. It's completely bizarre from a folk point of view. But it's not weird in the further sense that we really don't understand what's going on scientifically either. Hmm. Except except I sh that it doesn't quite fit with quantum mechanics. <laughs> and that's weird, actually. So then you get the weirdness when you try to fit relativity theory and quantum mechanics together. Then, then you get something that both defies common sense and just like we don't know what's going on. That leads me to wonder then, will all of the current weirdness eventually just collapse into bizarreness? So the world is is ultimately not going to be weird to us forever. I don't think that's right. So there's this analogy that's often attributed to, Ein attributed to Einstein, but in fact, I don't think he said it, which is that as the circle of light grows bigger, the circle of darkness grows bigger around it. I think... There are things that used to be weird that became merely bizarre and now aren't even bizarre, like the fact that the Earth is not in the center of the universe, right? The idea that the Earth moved, mm -hmm. you know, in, when Copernicus proposed it, it was bizarrely contrary to common sense. It didn't really fit with our current ast astronomical understandings. There wasn't a compelling astronomical evidence in favor of it. Right. Eventually, it became bizarre in the sense that it still didn't fit with common sense. But, you know, once Galileo and Kepler got their thing going, it was like, yeah, OK, the scientific consensus is it favors it. Uh, and now people don't even find it all that strange. Right. So particular issues can move from being weird to being merely bizarre to being not even bizarre. But the idea that there won't always be stuff beyond our understanding that doesn't strike me as likely. I think, you know, one of the things, one way of thinking about it is 
you know, to think about the the two year olds annoying why questions, right? Two year asks asks you something. Well, why is the sky blue, <laughs> right? And you give your best attempt at a scientific answer, and the two year old says why, right? And the two year old says why. And mm -hmm. this two year old can keep backing up with why questions. The deeper your understanding goes, the far the more of those why questions you can answer. But eventually, there will be you're not going to run to the ground why, where there's no further why to ask. I think there will always be something about the world and something about us that we are not going to be able to back away far enough to understand. So I guess what I'm wondering then, is this a time thing? So we won't last long enough to explain all of the things, or there are questions that are outside the capacity of science to answer and thus move from the realm of weird to bizarre. Um, it's not a time thing as I'm seeing it. Now, I should say that this particular thing that we're talking about right now, I don't develop in detail as an argument in the book. Um, I gesture okay. at it a little bit. but um, So I haven't fully developed my detailed answer on this. But it's, well, it's definitely, it's not in my view a time thing. And it's not even that there are particular questions that I think necessarily elude science as it's almost more like a transcendental thing in the sense that any knowledge you have, here's another way you can think about it in terms of the classic Agrippan trilemma, right? Any knowledge you have is- I'm sorry, the classic what? Agrippan trilemma, do you know this? No, I don't. Yeah, so yeah. I'd, well, I'd I mean, love to. Even if, you, even if you pretended that, even if you said you knew it, your listeners might not, right? So the idea is yeah, yeah. anything that you say, anything that you claim, if, if, if you try to defend it, well, you got basically three options. You can either just assert it undefended, or you can defend it by appealing to something else, or, but, but then you raise the same question again. Okay, so why is that thing? What do, what do you do in support of that thing, right? You can either give it undefended or you can pull up something else in support or you can argue in a circle, right? So there's a trilemma. All yeah. arguments ultimately will either be circular, ground out in something undefended or just regress infinitely. I like that. That's nice and clean. Right. So whatever scientific knowledge or philosophical knowledge we come to, at some point, we're going to have to say, well, we're just taking that as an assumption. I can't really explain it more. Or we're going to just get caught pursuing that regress and pursuing it and pursuing it and pursuing it, you know, or we're going to tie ourselves in a circle and the circle really ultimately is going to be some kind of ungrounded thing too. So the thought that I have here is that in some, we can call it transcendental to make it sound fancy, <laughs> right? In some transcendental <laughs> sense, we're not ever going to be able to understand the grounds and explanation of everything there's going to be the grounds of the grounds of the grounds of the grounds and eventually we're going to poop out it's not just because we're going to get tired or go extinct or something like that there's just something about the process that's inexhaustible okay i i like that answer now just for my own edification you it's the gripping trilemma a gripping a g r i p p a n after Agrippa. And who, who he was a medieval, that? I think. I, you know, I tried to find his writings at one point to try to get back to the original source of the Agrippan trilemma, and no, 
I can't remember. This was a long time ago, but I found I found him. Agrippa was a Pyrrhonist philosopher who probably lived toward the end of the first century. Yeah, okay, so late antiquity. Okay, cool. But we don't have his writings. We just he's kind of, as far as I remember, just basically famous for this trilemma. Yeah. All right. Well, great. We've started off very well. I've learned something quite fascinating. <laughs> so now, to talk more about some particular issues in your book. Why, if materialism is true, is the United States probably conscious? My guess is that this has something to do with functionalism, which I know a little bit about from Ned Block. But why don't we start with maybe just briefly, I think materialism will be pretty easy for you to sum up and then move from there. Right. Well, materialism (laughs) is actually not that easy to sum up. There have been various attempts to define it, and it turns out to be actually pretty tricky to define. But, But we can gesture toward it. Right. Sure, sure. I mean, all things are material, but then there is the question, I mean, what is, like, is a field what is material? material? Yeah, exactly, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. the way that I like to think of materialism is it's the view, if you think about quarks, protons, electrons, photons, field, magnetic fields, stuff like that, right? Materialism is the view that the universe is fundamentally composed of stuff like that and the things that compose it or interact with it in a way that is not fundamentally mental. Right? So decades ago, we might have said, you know, protons, electrons, neutrons, everything's composed of that. That's it. Story's over. Right now, it's going to be more complex than that. But it's some version of that is materialism. Uh, And then you have to build into that, that 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 these things are not fundamentally mental or you get some views that end up being technically materialism that we wouldn't want to call materialism, right? So you've got this non-mental kind of little stuff or either particles or fields or strings or whatever that kind of is not fundamentally mental and interacts in some way. And then every, all of our mental lives arise from that. So that's materialism. Okay. And then the kind of the central thought of that chapter um, is that if you look at what materialists say, about how conscious experience arises out of the interactions of these fundamental things, the United States basically satisfies all the kinds of criteria that are normally appealed to. So why is it that brains are conscious, right? So, well, they do a lot of complex information processing. So does the United States. Well, in order to really understand this thesis, we need to think a little carefully about what I mean by the United States. By the United States, I don't mean the government. I don't mean some abstract Mm -hmm. thing. I mean, like, the concrete entity that is all the people of the United States as parts, kind of like the cells of your body constitute you as parts, right? So imagine all the people of the United States as residents and citizens. Each of them are, are part of this spatially distributed large thing like group entity right that thing does a lot of information processing a lot of exchange it behaves in all kinds of ways with this environment it imports goods it regulates its smoggy exhalations it it announces its position on foreign affairs it engages in wars when it engages in wars it seems to deploy sensory capacities right the army doesn't crash into the mountain it goes around it right 
Um, it's it speaks, it represents itself. It's got really complex self representations. It is. Uh, I mean, if you think about what, like, if we think rabbits are conscious, as most people do, right? Mm-hmm. What does a rabbit brain have that the United States doesn't have? There are a couple things that immediately come to mind. Again, since it's a rabbit, we're going to have to be a bit presumptuous. But a rabbit, I assume, has some sort of narrative center, even if it's not linguistic the way ours is. Hmm. But I imagine that the rabbit is sort of, it, it, it sees itself or feels itself located in a kernel somewhere behind its eyes. And <laughs> I don't, yeah. Well, it's, the United it's, States yeah, it's, is located on North America. I mean, it's a big thing. So it's not going to be located mm-hmm. in any narrow location, right? But it's located on sure. North America. I, I don't, I can imagine though, it's not so much, I didn't mean to draw location into yeah. this this point because I I can imagine a a conscious artificially intelligent creature that is disembodied but still has maybe uh, a narrative sense of self it doesn't need to necessarily be instantiated in one point but that that's one difference that I see between mm-hmm. the rabbit and the United States and then one other thing is that all the other conscious creatures that we know of I mean chief among them ourselves do have a very clean spatial delimitation to what the brain is and what we think is the subject of consciousness whereas the united states is this very discrete conglomeration of things that i mean pretty much everything within the skull i can really say okay this is part of the of Robinson's brain, but I can't necessarily point to everything within the United States and even imagine how these things would play some role in, in consciousness. But yeah, well, I mean, there's stuff in your brain that you might not think plays a role in consciousness. I mean, to what extent? Oh, you're, you're very right. That's a good point. The linings of the blood vessels. I mean, you know, they're important but they're not the neurons, mm-hmm. right? Well, so the roads in the United States are important. They're not the people. I mean, from a broad point of view, you can say, well, the neurons, you know, the, the blood vessels are part of your brain and part of your the system that gives rise to consciousness. And you might take a similarly broad mm-hmm. view of the, of the roads in the United States, right? Or you could go more narrow and say, well, look, it's really about the neurons and the neural connections. Or in the United States, you could say it's really about the people that compose it. And so you can kind of go either way on that. On... Mm-hmm. On narrative, I'm not sure exactly how rich you mean it, but you know, do rabbits have a narrative sense of the self? Well, I don't know, but maybe in a maybe in a weak sense at most. But then I'm not sure the United States doesn't. Also, I mean, the United States talks about its history, has plans mm-hmm. for the future. I mean, it seems to. Sure. When maybe... the United States okay. scolds Iran for developing nuclear weapons or whatever, right? It's that's fitting into a whole history of its interactions with other organisms of its type. Mm -hmm. 
maybe a, another word I might point to is there's some sort of phenomenology to being a rabbit, but I'm not sure that there's a phenomenology to being a. Well, that's the the, that's States. exactly the question, right? Mm-hmm. So I use consciousness and phenomenology interchangeably. They mean the same thing in my term, right? So I think okay. commonsensically, we'd say. No, of course, the United States doesn't have phenomenology. But what I'm saying is, okay, well, what's the basis for having phenomenology according to materialists? Well, it's having stuff like lots of information exchange and intellectual and, you know, uh, sorry, and intelligent information exchange with its environment. And, you know, maybe having some kind of narrative in a weak sense, a weak enough sense that we could include a rabbit, right? That kind of stuff is what is seems to be on most materialist accounts enough to have phenomenality, phenomenology, experience, something it's like consciousness. I use all these phrases equivalently. So why doesn't the United States have the same thing? We find it absurd. People think it, I mean, me, you maybe (laughs) think it's absurd. It's obviously false. (laughs) Right. But um, I don't find it obviously false. Uh, Okay. Yeah. That, no, that's, that's great. That's what I was going to ask next. I listened to Kieran Setia's, podcast five questions and he often asks his guests a question inspired by iris murdoch murdoch do you believe the papers that you write or the arguments that you make and i'm i'm very curious in this case do you think that the united states is probably conscious well i'm not necessarily a materialist okay so i I am kind of ambivalent among three possible reactions. And where I put the weight among this ambivalence fluctuates depending on kind of what's salient or something. Um, but I, but all three of these reactions, I think, get a non-trivial portion of my credence. One is, go for it, sure. Materialism is probably our, it's our, our best guess. And why not think that one surprising result of materialism is that you get group consciousness in an entity like the United States. I mean, boy, f- cosmology, physics, they're pretty, some pretty fundamentally surprising results there. The world is not necessarily like we commonsensically assume. Why couldn't that just be the case here? Right. If our best materialist theories say, here's what you need for consciousness and lo and behold, the United States has it, you know, well, maybe that's just kind of like the twin paradox or the weirdness of quantum mechanics or whatever. Right. So that's one reaction. I, one mood that I'm in sometimes or another mood or another thing that I'm kind of aspect of the ambivalence or tribivalence is to say, okay, well, look, Maybe materialism isn't right. I have some, it's my weekly, my favorite inclination or theory with respect to consciousness, but I'm not committed to it, you know, and maybe this is just one of the unfortunate consequences that you get from committing to this false theory. Uh, and then the third thing uh, that the one that the materialists are ha- you generally happiest <laughs> to think of as the proper conclusion of this paper, which I think is definitely a reasonable thing that you could think is, well, think of it as a challenge. Maybe the materialist, maybe what's happened is materialist theories theories are not really well developed. 
show me develop materialists a theory that delivers the appealing conclusion that humans are conscious rabbits are conscious space aliens of various plausible sorts are conscious we didn't talk about that but you know you if you want a general theory you're going to want a theory that applies to lots of hypothetical cases and delivers what seem to be the right results for those cases gets you consciousness in all those right kinds of cases but also doesn't get you u.s consciousness i mean maybe <clears throat> maybe the thing to do is develop that theory now i don't know why we should take it as a fixed point in developing our theory of consciousness that okay we know for sure the united states you know is not going to be conscious if the theory implies that just chuck it out that would be a good fixed point to have if we had excellent epistemic reason for thinking that group, con group consciousness was impossible. But as far as I can tell, our only real reason for thinking it's impossible is it's unintuitive, it's contrary to common sense, kind of doesn't seem right. But you know, that's not really a compelling reason. Hmm. The next subject that I was curious about is involves Kant, who is who i don't i don't know nearly enough about I, I mean their philosophy as you're well aware is a huge subject and we inevitably even uh the 80 year old emeritus professors who've been around for a long time have huge gaps and kant is definitely one of my gaps now i also know very little about cyberpunk other than <laughs> uh I have I have a vague idea of what the aesthetic is, right? And so when when I saw that you were writing or thinking about the similarities of Kant and cyberpunk, I was quite uh, perplexed. Now, who or what? Maybe we should start here with what cyberpunk is. Right. Well, the thing that your viewers will probably be most familiar with from cyberpunk is the Matrix. So lots of people. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. The Matrix oh, yeah. Uh, is a classic cyberpunk movie. Um, really? Okay. Yeah. Matrix is definitely, I mean, top five movies. I absolutely <laughs> adore it. Love yeah. It. So, I mean, in the history of science fiction, it got, it got started in the mid 80s. Um, uh, Neuromancer by uh, uh, William Gibson is kind of like a very important central early piece of fiction that was seen as cyberpunk. Um, and yeah, there's this kind of aesthetic to it, which isn't really relevant to the part of the picture that, uh, that I'm drawing philosophically, but when, if what's one thing that's central to a lot of cyberpunk, including Gibson, uh, Gibson's Neuromancer and the matrix is that you can plug in to a reality that is what we know now call a virtual reality in which you can interact with people. And that is super important. Uh, and that in some ways might be more important to ordinary people uh, than kind of what we think of as an ordinary reality, right? So you can jack in and you're interacting and living in a totally different kind of, of world that's created by computers. And you experience it directly, right? In the matrix, you know, that's the situation of ordinary people. They don't even know that they're living in this kind of illusory world right in um in neuromancer hackers intentionally kind of jack in uh to the matrix so they can manipulate computer programs and hack in uh, uh to security websites and stuff like that right so they know that they're they're in cyberspace but 
Um, but that's the kind of idea. And then um, I can connect that up with Cond if you like. But that's the that's the please uh, please <laughs> right. So you know, Kant is open to so many interpretations. So I don't, I am not a Kant specialist by any stretch, um, but I think it's within the realm of not unreasonable interpretations of Kant to think of it as having a certain kind of kinship with um, this cyberpunk idea of plugging into a virtual reality or the matrix or cyberspace. And that is, you know, the, the critique of pure reason, the transcendental aesthetic, um, sees space and time and causation as not fundamental features of things as they are in themselves, but rather as features that we bring to the world. So as a first pass version of the analogy here, you could kind of think of it as if we are creating our own cyberspace, our own matrix psychologically that we live in that doesn't really resemble fundamental reality as it is in itself. Because the noumena is just in, inaccessible to us in principle. Right. So, um, the position that I call transcendental idealism, and I think Kant is the most important advocate of it, um, but I think you could be a transcendental idealist and without being a Kantian down the line. The position I call transcendental idealism is committed to two things. One is that um, we don't know the fundamental nature of things as they are in themselves. And two, Spatiality is a feature that we bring to the world. It depends on our minds. And if you accept those two things, then in my view, you're a transcendental idealist. Um, and that would be a that would be an alternative position to materialism. In the materialist view, standardly, I think, <laughs> right? Um, Spatiality is a feature of things as, as they are in themselves. Now, this is where defining materialism gets a little complicated because, you know, there are some physicists who think that spatiality arises from the informational features of things. And then, you know, how materialist is that really? What do we mean by materialism exactly? But, but kind of, your ordinary bread and butter materialist, you know, protons, neutrons, fields, they're things that exist in space and have spatial properties, spatial location. So, um, if you want to spend a little more time on it, I can give it an, a one more, I can give it another twist and kind of bring it together. Yeah, yeah, a little please, bit please. All right, so. Please. So the, the other twist is to think about the theory of computation, right? So the theory of computation goes back to Alan Turing in the 1930s. And there's nothing about comp computation that is inherently spatial, right? In order, if you look closely at standard understandings of computation, you need states, you need transitions among states, 
you need symbols, right. you need those kinds of things. But you don't need it's material, space. entirely materially agnostic. It's agnostic about materialism, right? So you could implement, and I in the book I go through in detail how you could do this. You could implement a, a computer wholly in a non-spatial substance, like a Cartesian soul, right? If you think of Descartes traditionally thought that souls, immaterial souls existed in time, but not in space, right? Your soul is not located in the center of your head or something like that. It's not a spatial thing. It is a temporal thing, right? So you could have an immaterial soul that engages in computation. Now, if you also <laughs> hold that the mind is a computer or could be implemented by a computer as many people hold but you know not everybody holds right but a lot of people who like science fiction you know think well robots could be conscious you know, that would be an example of a mind being implemented by a computer right now imagine it being implemented by a spatial computer sorry by a non-spatial computer what if all of reality is being implemented by a non-spatial computer computer and we are just software programs basically inside that non-spatial computer right so we're living in the matrix or we're living in um a simulation the simulation the matrix is being implemented by a computer that is not fundamentally spatial it's informational maybe it's temporal but it's not fundamentally spatial right then you've got a kind of a fundamental reality that's just very different from what how we ordinarily think uh, and to which we may not have any access really at all, right? If you go down that path, that's not, you're not quite at Kant yet, <laughs> but you're getting closer. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's kind of the idea here, right? I'm not saying it's true, but, but considering it as a possibility, I think, gets us interestingly close to Kant using modern science fictional type concepts that a very different type of philosopher and person resonates with that normally resonates with, you know, 18th century philosophy. So if you go down that path and you can start to see how, oh, it might be the case that reality is not fundamentally spatial, that spatiality is just how our minds make sense of some fundamentally non-spatial thing that we don't really understand. Mm -hmm. I, I, I very much see how the matrix connects to this idea of there being an inaccessible reality, but the part, the place where the matrix itself uh, no longer becomes the ideal example for this case is that you can become unplugged from the matrix and leave the matrix and enter the uh, erstwhile inaccessible reality. Right. But I, I saw that there in your in your book, you indicate that there is experimental evidence for the existence of an external world. And I had the sense as I, I saw this chapter that you were precisely referring to, uh, I mean, not necessarily just a, a brain in a vat type case, but the idea that the world is a is a simulation. And if that is the case, if I'm if I'm on the right track, what is the experimental evidence 
for the existence of external an external world. Why why do you find this matrix picture convincing? So right. So to be clear about the aim in that chapter, the skeptical position that I'm aiming to refute in that chapter is the view that the only thing that exists in the entire cosmos, or at least the entire universe, is my own mind. So even if I'm in the matrix, that would be that's a strong form of solipsism. So even if I'm in the matrix, solipsism would be wrong because something would exist other than my own mind, the computer. So in that chapter, all I'm trying to do is move from solipsism compatible premises to an anti-solipsistic conclusion. I haven't seen a philosopher who's really done that well and carefully. There have been attempts like Kant's refutation of idealism and Descartes' meditations, but I think those arguments really don't quite work. Russell has done some stuff that I think is interesting, but also I think his arguments are kind of undeveloped and problematic. Um, you know, and there have been others, um, Fichte and others. But, but what I, all I'm trying to do in that chapter is like, here I am with my stream of experiences. Can I somehow break through that stream and say something besides this stream of experience must exist? Maybe I don't know, have any idea what it is, but it's something other than just me that exists in the world. Mm -hmm. That is uh, the aim of that chapter <laughs> and um yeah, yeah yeah it seems kind of aimed at this husserlian picture that all we really know is our phenomenology right and everything else is really just a, a castle on in a cloud right. or something like that but how yeah. so how how do you actually propose... don't i mean the, for the purpose of that chapter i kind of take the Husserlian Cartesian starting point as my own starting point. Although in my earlier work, I don't agree with that at all. And in fact, I, I, I don't agree with that at all. So this, this chapter is dialectically working at variance with some of my other views. Um, so, but you're right about and, taking that Husserlian st starting point. Yeah. And how do you propose to break through that very, very thick wall? Right. So in that chapter, I do three experiments with the help of uh, Alan Moore, who was one of my graduate students at the time, you know, in the Alan Moore, the no, not the famous, not the famous Alan Moore. <laughs> okay, I was gonna say, <laughs> I mean, you know, okay, he should be famous. He should he should be the famous yeah, yeah, Alan yeah, Moore. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. Okay. Um, Are these three thought experiments, I take it? No, they're actual experiments. They're actual experiments with oh. actual data and, uh, you know, statistical oh, tests. Cool. <laughs> right? Okay. There were two th I mean, it was, I was at an APA meeting with Alan, and we were like, wouldn't it be cool if you had, like, scientific p-values that the external world exists? And it wouldn't be fun, fun to write a collaborative paper about solipsism? So the, paper, the, the, the idea of the paper, which eventually became the chapter with further revisions, 
was kind of this this idea for a fun project of like collaboratively yeah. trying him trying to convince me that the external world exists including him right and could he do it uh and could we do it with like actual scientific experiments so what we do is we try three scientific experiments and um I won't describe all three. The second one in particular is really complicated to explain. And I found that people have a lot of trouble understanding it, but um, the first and third are a little easier. So in the first experiment, basically what I do is I create what seems to be a program in Microsoft Excel that will determine whether four digit numbers are prime or non-prime. I generate a fresh set of four digit numbers and then I guess, is this one prime? Is this one prime? Is this one prime? I do that for 20 numbers. And then I run this seeming Excel program. Now I don't assume that Excel actually exists, that there actually isn't a program or anything like that. I just do what seems to me to be kind of the experience of doing this seeming thing in my head of dragging down the prime number function. And lo and behold, it lists the various numbers as prime or non-prime. And then through laborious hand calculation, I figure out that it is almost entirely correct. So it seems like there is something, there must be some explanation for how I experienced the word prime and word non-prime next to these various numbers in a way that actually correlated with their primeness or non-primeness even though at the moment, my best guess didn't align very well with there being prime or non-prime. The best explanation I propose for that experience of seeing prime next to all and only the prime numbers is that something in the world can calculate prime numbers better than, my, than I can do so in my own experience. And then I go through various possible alternative explanations. This experiment isn't decisive on its own, but I do think the easiest, most straightforward explanation of it, if we're open-minded about solipsism, rather than being committed solipsists or closed-minded about it, is to say, well, look, it seems like the best explanation is like, maybe there is something out there that's like better than I am at figuring out what prime numbers <laughs> are. Um, then I, I do a couple other experiments. The, the kind of the, the third and final experiment is I play speed chess with Alan and he basically kicks my butt. <laughs> and the best explanation for <laughs> why it is that I'm having these experiences of like, wow, that was a clever move that I wasn't expecting <laughs> was, is that there's something in the world besides me, that's better at, than me at chess that is right. set on defeating me. Even if this was a dream, you know, I could imagine being, I could imagine a dream of being defeated by a chess master, you know, but the thing about mm -hmm. a dream is those chess moves won't, they won't be real and clever in the same kind of way, right? I'll, I'll have a vague yeah. Yeah, sense yeah, yeah. that I'm being defeated, but, but the, I'm not going to be, I'm not capable of dreaming up a real chess master's play, Right. Mm -hmm. any more than I'm capable of dreaming up the proof of Fermat's last theorem, right? I could like dream that I wrote a bunch of lines and ah, I proved Fermat's last theorem, right? But it wouldn't like, you know, it wouldn't hold up, right? Yeah. Whereas the chess 
and a similar thing for if I dreamed of being beaten by a chess master, right? So, so these concrete specific moves that regularly surprise me, uh, despite my best efforts, right? The best explanation for that appears to be that there's this thing in the world, Alan, or mm-hmm. maybe a computer program or maybe the matrix or something, <laughs> but something out there is yeah, better yeah, than yeah. VHS, right? So that's the, so what, what we try to do in the chapter is just do that rigorously, right? Really think about, okay, look, if we're being open-minded about solipsism, what could the solipsists say? What kinds of possible scientific responses could the science, could the solipsist give? How can we think through those responses, right? So try to give solipsism a chance to, instead of just kind of casually say, as most people who favor inference to the best explanation style, style responses to solipsism, they just say, ah, solipsists couldn't explain that. That's kind of what Russell does, just kind of casually, right? We try to mm-hmm. give the solipsist really a fair chance um, and then work through, okay, here's what the solipsist would have to say as a scientific explanation for this pattern of results, right? When you think about it, it doesn't seem very plausible, but, you know, worth trying another experiment to, to see if we can, you know, angle in on that a little better. That's the spirit of it. No, no, I, I really, I really like that a lot. I mean, for if if you wanted to maintain the solipsistic position in the face of an argument like this, you would really have to provide a quite a drastic reunderstanding of of what the mind is. I mean, yeah. uh, compared to our our contemporary scientific understanding of it, to explain how there could be all of these regularities or maybe sensible complexities like a chess match out there that you the the Husserlian phenomenological subject has no way of of constructing yourself right i mean one way to think about it too is think about like a scientific theory when it's in trouble right it kind of it predicts one thing from the empirical evidence. The empirical evidence comes out a different way. It comes up with excuses. It gets more complicated. It gets more implausible. And it's kind of like comes up with ad hoc explanations for why everything must be the case. And it's really complex, right? That's the sign of a theory in trouble, right? And I think that's the position that Alan and I kind of put solipsism in through this series of experiments uh, and discussions of what could the solipsist say. There's always something the solipsist could say, but it just gets so convoluted and complicated. Right? By scientific standards, you're just like, okay, this just looks like a theory that's not cutting it. Mm-hmm. Well, while, while we're on the topic about experimenting, you, you wrote a very well-known paper about the relationship between whether one is a moral philosopher and whether they actually act more morally than, than the rest of the population at large. Can we talk a bit about that and and sure. what the experiments or experiment that you uh, performed were? Right, I've done a bunch of experiments on that. I think overall I've got something like seventeen different main measures okay. and a bunch of sub measures. It's over a series of papers. Most of the papers are collaborative with Joshua Rust, um, who is a former graduate student of mine and is a professor of philosophy at Stetson. University. Alan Moore uh, is a professor at uh, San Francisco State, by the way, now. Um, so, right. So, 
Josh and I were interested in the question of whether people who study ethics behave any differently or more ethically than other people. And no one had ever studied that systematically before, right? People have opinions. You ask people, ethicists and non-ethicists, other philosophers, other people in academia, everyone's got an opinion. And it's an interesting question. I, I mean, I think most people do. It's kind of interesting, right? And a lot of people think it's obvious that they wouldn't or that they do or, you know, but, but no one ever really looked at it systematically. So we decided to look at it as systematically as we could, right? Do people who study ethics, does it have any effect on their behavior that we can measure, right? Do, do people who study ethics actually behave any ethically better than comparison groups, right? And you got to choose the right comparison group. I think the right comparison group, uh, two, there are two comparison groups that we normally use. One is other professors of philosophy who don't specialize in ethics. And then the other comparison group we sometimes use is professors in departments other than philosophy at the same universities, right? So by looking at those comparison groups, you're looking at people who differ in their level of exposure to philosophical ethics, but who are going to be similar in level of education, in income, in social background, and lots of other stuff. All right, so what we found over and over again, with a couple exceptions, which are worth going into if you're interested, um, is that ethicists don't behave any differently than the comparison groups. Not better, not worse. Just kind of the same. Um, the kind of, the most striking result for me about this concerned vegetarianism. Um, so what we found was on some issues, ethicists have more stringent moral views or more demanding moral views, right? So ethicists were more likely than were other professors to say that it's morally bad regularly to eat the meat of mammals. That was the way we phrased our vegetarianism question. There are various ways you could phrase a question like that, no perfect way. Uh, so they were more likely to say it's bad regularly to eat the uh, meat of mammals. Um, but when we asked them um, to self-report, did you eat the meat of a mammal at your previous evening meal, not including snacks, they reported having eaten meat at about the same rate as did our comparison groups. Uh, so we found a pretty big difference in opinion. 60% of the ethicists said it was bad versus 45% of the non-ethicist philosophers and 19% of the non-philosophers, professors in departments other than philosophy. So 60, 45, 19, pretty big difference. Um, did you eat the meat of a mammal at your previous evening meal? I think 37% of ethicists said yes. And 38% of respondents overall was a little lower for the non-ethicist philosophers, maybe 30, low 30s, a little higher for the for the professors and departments other than philosophy. Anyway, no big statistical difference. So pretty big difference in opinion, not much difference in self-reported behavior. So I think that's kind of interesting, right? So ethicists are more likely to say, oh, that's bad to eat meat, <laughs> but then they go ahead and eat meat anyway. Um, I should say though, when I say this, so um, there was a follow-up study done several years later in Germany that did find that um, ethicists uh, reported eating less meat at their previous evening meals, as well as having more stringent moral views. So, um, so maybe, maybe they're, maybe they do a little bit, but maybe not as much as, as you would think, given their difference in opinion. Uh, but anyway, overall, what we found over and over again was very little difference in behavior. 
uh, between ethicists and non-ethicists. This I find very surprising, which I mean, well, maybe you didn't, maybe you were one of those people who didn't expect to find a difference, but just based on introspection, it surprises me because I feel that the more that I think about moral issues, and again, this is subjectively measured, maybe uh, other people who know me don't think that this is the outcome, but I at least feel that I act much more morally. So I find this surprising. I find it surprising in a way also, right? Because I think it is pretty compelling phenomenologically and anecdotally that sometimes you think about ethical issues, you change your minds about things, and then you put them in, into, then you live according to it, right? I mean, and we chose vegetarianism in part because that's one of the, strongest cases for this right there are lots of people who say yeah i read peter singer i read james rachel's i the arguments for not eating meat not eating factory farm meat are compelling and so i stopped eating meat a lot of people say that and i don't it would be really strange if that was just systematically wrong mm-hmm. so that was partly why we we thought vegetarianism would be kind of the best chance for finding a a kind of a real effect um and we do have actually there's another study we did where there does seem to be kind of effect so maybe sometimes it happens for vegetarianism we talked about that we found some effects with students but um right so lots of other stuff like honesty right you know oh i read kant i decided i shouldn't lie (laughs) you know i should be more honest right that's kind of fuzzy and you know is that really do people like who study kant's ethics are they really less likely to you know that i feel like mm, i don't know but when someone says look i read singer and i went from eating meat to not eating meat you know i don't i don't think they're lying i mean i think that probably really did happen if that's what they say so um yeah i find it somewhat surprising especially for the more concrete issues uh especially vegetarianism and charitable giving uh that we don't see much or very consistent effect and was there a philosophical or did you offer a philosophical explanation to what you found or was this purely to satisfy a curiosity and it was just uh, something maybe you wrote a a blog post to share results or it started how did did you deal with the yeah it started partly as just curiosity because it's an interesting issue and it seemed like someone ought to study it very much right also part started partly out of my interest in classical chinese philosophy um i uh i'm one of the things that i'm interested in classical. very nice background by the way oh thank you that might be japanese (laughs) yeah um one of the things i'm interested in classical chinese philosophy is the debate between mengzi and shenzi about whether human nature is good and Mengzi says human nature is good. And what he means by that, in my interpretation, is something like, if you stop and reflect and really kind of authentically think about moral issues and how to treat the people around you, you will find yourself drawn to do what's morally good and revolted by what's what's evil and what you need to do in order to develop morally is kind of 
think, reflect, notice these reactions that you have of like, yeah, it feels good to help somebody. Yeah, it feels yucky to like steal someone's umbrella or something, you know, right? You notice that it feels yucky to be bad. It feels good to be nice, right? And you cultivate that. And right, so in this mention picture, You'd think that there'd so, be wait. A you said Mencian. Am I yeah. right that his we refer to him as Mencius, or right? Mencius, Mencius, or Mengzi. the Anglicization, right? There's okay. two Anglicizations okay. for the same guy. Mencius is the kind of older one, and Mengzi is the the more contemporary one. What does that say about how Confucius is in Chinese? Do you know? Do I know what about Confucius? Well, I'm guessing that if Mencius is the Anglicization of right. Mengzi. Confucius is the Anglicization of something else, and uh, I I never thought about that before. Kongzi oh, or okay, Kong, Kongfuzi, yeah. Oh, cool. Oh, well, okay. I'm sorry for cutting yeah. you off. <laughs> right. Oh, so, please continue. Um, right. So, you know, I don't think it necessarily follows from Mengzi's view, but, um, but the part of me that's drawn to Mencius thinks, look. And part of me that's drawn to ancient ethics in general, I think in the Western tradition also, is like, isn't an important part of ethics to like reflect and think about what's good and like try to become better as a result and see what's good and what's right and do those things? And could you really make intellectual progress in thinking about what's good and right and not have any motivation to change or kind of become that way? Is there some kind of failure if you're doing ethics in this completely abstract way that has no positive impact on your life? You know, that kind of more ancient vision of ethics is attractive to me. Right? So, I mean, not that I, I mean, I think there's also room for weird abstract meta ethics articles and stuff like that that's fine right but like most of us who teach ethics it's not just all about trolley problems and meta ethics i mean you also teach students about racism and sexism and charitable giving and vegetarianism and honesty and you know all those kinds of things that have real impact that are you know relevant to your life decisions and, and shouldn't thinking about that have some impact on what you do and wouldn't it be weird if it didn't so uh so, yeah, so that's kind of the frame of mind that I was coming at this from. And but I thought, you know, because that was my background theoretical inclination. But then I, I saw people who were ethicists in my life and they seemed like ordinary, right? They didn't seem, seem especially good or especially bad. It seemed like there's they're just kind of a mix of normal kind of nerdy intellectual people. Right. So I thought this is kind of there's something incongruous there. What, what's really going on? So while we're talking about uh, Mengzi, you mentioned that you were interested about in his debate with another person named, I think, Zhangzhi. And I don't think <laughs> Shunzi, that's yeah. Kongzhi, which is Confucius, <laughs> <Kongzi. laughs> if I understand. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So, yeah I know so, they're a little hard to pronounce. But... Yeah, so yeah. What, what did the the second one, I won't pronounce his name, what did he have to say on human nature? And how did how Shunzi. did his, yeah, how did his, Shunzi, how did his... Uh, dispute or disagreement or argument or debate with with Mengzi, uh, Mengzi. Uh, manifest itself. Mengzi. Mengzi. Shunzi. Mengzi. 
Right. So I think I, so I think when you're it, pronouncing foreign words, the, the the thing that I like to do is just get as close as you can with English phonemes, right? So you don't need to try to like get the tones right or whatever, right? But with English phonemes, with Mungza, it's like M think of it as like M U N G T Z U. Mungza. Right. And Shunza, it's like S H U N T Z U. Shunza. Right. And and Kongza. K-O-N-G-T-Z-U, right? Kongza, something like that, right? And that's not how you, that's not how they're actually spelled, right? In the ang current anglicization, but but that's kind of, think about it, pronouncing them that way, right? So Mengzi versus Shunza. So Shunza uh, thinks that he has a, he has a surprisingly secular kind of modern view for someone from ancient China. It's really interesting. One of the things that I think that you learn by looking at, ancient Chinese philosophy, not in a super casual way, just reading a few of the very most famous texts, but by like looking at it a little more deeply. So there's a lot of diversity in it. Uh, and there are a lot of different types of views represented. And, you know, this kind of picture that you see, here's how Eastern people think, here's how Western people think is way too simple. Right? But Shenzhen is really interesting kind of modern, almost modern in some ways philosopher who thinks that morality is basically an artificial social construction. He says, you know, ancient people figured out what kinds of social structures led to an orderly society. And morality is basically teaching the next generation those social structures. And people have no attraction to behaving in those ways. What people want naturally is like, you know, pleasure and fun and good tasting food and sex and power and all that kind of stuff, right? You kind of have to force them to abide by these social structures that we've discovered make society run well. And if you just let them follow their inclinations, it's going to be chaos, right? So he's got this really kind of secular social structure view of, of morality. Well, that was all very fascinating, very cool to listen to. I, I, it's always nice to learn more about the philosophy in other cultures since uh, we're very West-centric in our philosophy departments. I just talked to Peter Adamson about Islamic philosophy at length, and that was really great. But returning to the question that all this emerged from, are you vegetarian? No. <laughs> I'm an example okay. of the kind of ethicists that I'm talking about, right? I think of, at this point, I've done enough ethics that I think that in some sense, although it's not my main focus, I kind of am an ethicist by the standards that I apply. And right, I kind of, my, my behavior is kind of the modal normal thing, right? I think it is a little morally bad. I mean, I don't think it's extremely bad, but I think it is a little morally bad, non-ideal to eat the meat of mammals or eat factory farmed animals. Uh, and yet I, I do continue to do it. Well, then now really returning full circle, we started off the cyberpunk discussion that turned into all these other things and then ended mm -hmm. up with vegetarianism. But we started off by talking about The Matrix. And I mentioned that it's one of my absolute favorite movies. And before we move on, I'm just curious if there are other aspects of The Matrix that you find philosophically philosophically compelling that we didn't touch on. Um, no, it's really that that it's really that main idea is the 
the idea of this artificial reality um, is the one that I find most interesting from the Matrix. I'm not a, I haven't even seen all of the Matrix movies. I'm not a, a big Matrix nut, so I couldn't get into the exact details of how it all works. Okay, My no, taste in cyberpunk no is a little more Greg Egan and William <laughs> Gibson. And, William uh, Gibson. Uh, yeah, so you you have picture. then maybe I guess we'll we'll return back to animals, but yeah. you have a chapter about whether there's something it's like to be a garden snail. Oh and, yeah, and you 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 pressed me a little bit when I talked about there being an, a narrative center of some sort to yeah. a rabbit. So I'm curious about how you uh, approached the garden snail in particular. Garden snails are really interesting. Um, for oh, a couple great. reasons. So I think they're a really interesting test case for thinking about animal consciousness because people's intuitions diverge, right? We're talking about common sense as a starting point, right? So, you know, one of the themes for of weirdness. the weirdness of the yeah, world yeah. is that common sense def- is going to mess up, right? But still, I think it's got to be a starting point for philosophy or any area where you don't know what you're doing, you kind of start with common sense. That's the default position. And then you see what happens, right? When you start from common sense, like everybody thinks you got a cat in your lap, right? Everybody thinks cats are conscious. I mean, there are a few nutty philosophers who have some doubts, right? But basically we all think cats have conscious experience, right? And most people don't think that bacteria are conscious or trees. Although there are some people who do think that. But you know, when we're talking about common sense, cats are in and bacteria are out. But garden snails, hmm, people are mixed. I would say, based on just the kind of informal asking around you know, in my social circles and my subculture, you know, maybe three quarters of people will say, oh, yeah, garden snails, I think they have experiences. I think they can feel pain or, you know, taste things. And, about 25% are like, no, you know, they're basically just plants. They don't have any experience. They don't have a sense of self or, you know, there's no phenomenological center going on there. Right. So, um, so opinions are, it's not a kind of obvious commonsensical from a commonsensical point of view. It's not an obvious yes or no. So that makes an interesting case in thinking about animal consciousness questions. So they're interesting in that way. The other way they're interesting is they're weird. So, <laughs> okay, they've got in our colloquial sense of weird, or well, kind of in both senses, really. Okay, <laughs> um, so, um, their central nervous system is only sixty thousand neurons. That's okay. tiny, like an ant. A little more a... than a nematode, but but, yeah. but but very tiny. It's yeah. like an ant's got a quarter million, so it's like oh. Yeah. Oh wow. It's a lot less than that. An is, ant. That is very surprising. And furthermore, they're the these neurons that they have in the central nervous system, they're in they're in kind of clumps of ganglia around their esophagus. And they're not even all that interconnected. Oh, quite bizarre. So I haven't found They're like the United States of animals. <laughs> kinda kinda. <laughs> I don't know. Right? Um now they do have a, a lot of peripheral neurons. They've got like you know, maybe a quarter million one-way peripheral neurons, especially from their posterior tentacles that terminate, you know. So nerves here. Yeah. Input nerves. 
right? But we don't usually yeah. think input nerves are where consciousness happens, right? It happens in the central nervous system normally, right? So, you know, so there's that, like most of their nerves are in their posterior tentacles instead of, well, they don't even really have brains where they got clumps of nerves around their esophagus, right? <laughs> At the same time, they engage in some pretty sophisticated behavior for having such a, so few central nervous system neurons, like uh, they have home ranges that like have homes where they nest and they will wander around through their home range and then come back to their nesting place. And if you, if you displace them, you know, throw them, right. You know, like, uh, you know, 10 meters away, they'll find their way back. And they're not just doing it by kind of, you know, if you think about like single cells, single cell animal, single cell entities will, will, they'll tumble, you know, and they'll move toward attractive things and away from, but they don't have like systematic exploration, right? Where snails have that. Um, the other thing is like their sex is really complicated. They are simultaneously like their 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 sexual intercourse, their sexual behavior, or... yeah, their sexual okay, intercourse okay. is really complicated. They're they're simultaneous hermaphrodites, right? So they have both female and male genitalia. <laughs> if you pick up a snail, you might be like, okay. "Wait, where, where's the penis?" <laughs> yeah, the, it's like there's this. Basically, exactly you might think of the side. Think of it as the side <laughs> of the neck. There's like this pouch in there that is normally inside the body, and then it kind of comes out, right? And there's a penis and a vagina in this pouch, right? When they're sexually aroused, convenient, right? So, mating takes about, on average, like seven hours, right? So what you get is you get two <laughs> snails, and they'll they'll kind of they'll contact each other, and then pull away, and they'll kind of taste each other's slime trails and then like either continue the mating thing or break away. Right. They'll, they'll kind of touch or kiss their, their front tentacles. Sometimes they'll take little bites out of each other and then they'll shoot Neurotic. love darts. They'll shoot love darts at each other. Right. So these are centimeter long arrows made of calcium covered in mucus. And they'll shoot them at each other. <laughs> and like they hit about, <laughs> half the time or a third of the time, right? Uh, when they hit, it's not hitting in the vagina or anywhere. It's just like going into the skin, right? They shoot love darts at each other, sometimes hit, sometimes miss, right? The mating kind of continues. They try over and over again to insert their penises into each other's vaginas, you know, and mating culminates when they manage to do that simultaneously. And then they kind of transfer each to the other a spermatophore, which is like sperms plus nutrients. The receiving snail will then like basically digest almost all of the sperm. Well, they're <laughs> both receiving, right? They're both receiving, right. So they'll each okay, okay. digest, like just eat basically most of the sperm <laughs> that they received. Um, and they'll do this then several times, typically, right? And then after they've made it several times, they'll, they'll dig a shallow hole in the soil with their heads and they'll ovulate down to the soil and deposit eggs from their various mates. Now, mates whose uh, whose darts have hit, more of the eggs will have been fertilized by the mates whose darts have hit, right? So one of the theories is that the mucus on the darts protects the sperm of the shooter from being digested at as, at as high a rate as, the, as it would have been had the dart missed. So then, they, so then they ovulate down into the soil in this hole that they dig, and then they cover it up, and then they leave. Right? So this is super complicated. Yeah, super I, complicated. I never thought sixty thousand uh, central nervous system yeah. neurons, and they're doing this. 
Mm-hmm. I never thought I'd find soft course nail porn narration <laughs> so enthralling. <laughs> I think you should really consider writing a romance novel. Uh, you should see some of my science but... fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly strange uh, sex is, is not an uncommon theme in my science fiction. <laughs> nice. I, I'm sure you waited till you had tenure before <laughs> yes, you wrote I those did, ones. Actually, yeah, I did. <laughs> now, so what then? So, so you've you've you made a very good case for this being weird, and I'm curious how you develop the philosophical discussion around this question of whether or not they're conscious. So here's the kind of core argument. Prior to developing a theory about consciousness, I don't think it's obvious or should be obvious whether garden snails are or are not conscious based on the description I just gave. You know, it's kind of attractive to think that they might be conscious, right? And, you know, the more complicated the behavior, you start to relate to, relate to them. And, you know, like in my heart, I kind of like hope and think maybe they're conscious maybe that's where i would bet if i really had to but you don't want anybody to be missing out on that (laughs) (laughs) right but man you could also like current computers can do pretty sophisticated things and toy robots can do pretty sophisticated things and your enteric nervous system your gut is lined with half a billion neurons, way, way, way more than a garden snail, as many as a small mammal, right? Just line your your esophagus, your stomach, your intestines, and control digestion, right? And it can operate even when it's severed from the central nervous system. We don't normally think that your enteric nervous system is a source of consciousness, right? So there's like, you can have pretty complicated behavior, you can have pretty big neural systems that, you know, it's at least most people would say are not conscious, right? So maybe the snail's kind of like that. Maybe it's kind of not conscious like we think a toy robot is not conscious, or it's not conscious like we think a, a computer isn't conscious, or it's not conscious like we think the enteric nervous system isn't conscious. I think that's a reasonable point of view. It's also a reasonable point of view to think, well, maybe they are conscious, right? Well, we could give an argument we could kind of give the intuitive argument for that if you want, but I, I don't want to get too much into that because, you know, we only have so much time. And I think that's where people are a little bit more drawn anyway. So I think you could come up either way kind of on kind of armchair intuitive grounds, right? So if we're going to settle the question of snail consciousness, we need a theory. We need a good theory of consciousness to apply to the case. But then here's the problem. To develop a theory of consciousness to apply to the case, you need to make some background assumptions about approximately what kinds of things are conscious. Right? Some theories of consciousness that you see on the market by philosophers or neuroscientists or psychologists or computer scientists are plainly liberal in the sense that they're going to let lots of things count as conscious. Other theories are plainly conservative in this in the sense that they're going to require really sophisticated cognitive structures for something to be conscious. So you have one of these liberal theories that says basically, well, as long as you've got a body and 
you know, you can kind of distinguish your own body from the environment and not eat yourself and <laughs> kind of have a sense of position, right? You know, then you're conscious, right? Something like that, Merker's theory, maybe, you know, then plainly on that kind of theory, garden snails are going to be conscious, right? Or if you take a theory that where consciousness requires some kind of sophisticated self-representation, like a higher order thought theory, you know, garden snails are not going to be engaged in higher order thought, <laughs> right? They don't have representations of their own minds, I, probably, right? So what's going to happen is in order to develop a general theory of consciousness, you're going to need to make some background assumptions about in broad strokes, at least, what kinds of things in the universe are conscious and what kinds of things aren't. And as soon as you do that, you've begged the question one way or another about garden snails. So we start in ignorance about the consciousness of garden snails, and then we end up in ignorance because we've got a bunch of theories and how attracted you are to the various theories is going to partly depend to a substantial extent, depend on your prior opinions about whether things like garden snails are sophisticated enough to have consciousness. So it's going to just basically kind of end up in a circle, kind of like Agrippa says, right? I was exactly <laughs> where I was going to go with that. So, so I don't think that we have enough common ground. I call this a common ground problem. I got it. There's some other complexities to this, right? But just one of the problems, I call it the common ground problem, right? In a lot of areas in philosophy, there's a lot of common ground, right? So if you, if you look at, say, epistemology, there's a lot of common ground about like what counts as a, an instance of knowledge or an instance of ignorance, what counts as a good justification, what counts as a bad justification. There's, of course, disputes, right? But but, you know, basically, there's a lot of agreement about straightforward cases. And the disputes are, you know, where the interesting fights are, right? But there's a lot of common ground. Or if you look at ethics, there's a lot of common ground. Another thing I think you can learn by looking at ancient Chinese ethics is you read Confucius and it's like, this all fits common sense, right? It's not like reading some alien document. This is as far as you can get from having, as far as you can get from contemporary Western culture and have a large written body of ethical documents, right, is basically ancient China, right? It's as far as you can get culturally from us, you read Confucius and you're like, yeah, I basically agree with almost all of this. It seems pretty commonsensical, right? So of course, there are lots of disputes in ethics, but there's so much common ground. But that's what we don't have in common. So, so, so philosophers can resolve things because they can appeal to the common ground, kind of figure out what's going on in the middle. In consciousness, there just isn't that common ground, right? You go all the way from some people who are panpsychists who think consciousness is ubiquitous, consciousness is everywhere in the universe, literally everything is conscious, right? This is an increasingly mm -hmm. common view, right? To people like Peter Carruthers, Dan Dennett, who are like, humans are conscious, and apes and dogs, maybe, <laughs> right? Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. I wouldn't have thought Daniel Dennett would say that, but I, I'm not disputing. He's a little, I I, I, he's a little cagey about it. He, there are moments where he seems to be saying that. And there are other moments where he's not, I'm not, I find him a little bit confusing on that. And Carruthers also has shifted his view over time on this a little bit. So I think the best way to characterize both Dennett and Carruthers is like, not totally clear on whether dogs and apes are conscious, you know, um, Definitely not going to go all the way to snails for sure, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, if you yeah. got doubts even about dogs and apes, right? So, 
Um, right. So that's huge, huge, huge difference in starting opinions about consciousness. There's not, you're not going to, we're not going to find the common ground. If you, any theory of consciousness you're going to be attracted to, you're going to be attracted to partly to a substantial extent because it fits your initial inclinations about broadly how widespread consciousness in the universe. Right? Mm -hmm. If you've got really liberal inclinations, you're not going to like, you know, higher thought theories and you're not going to like, you know, views where you need to have a narrative self or something like that. Right. Whereas if you've got much more liberal views, um, you're going to have no problem with snail consciousness. Yeah, I think Dennett actually has a book called From Bacteria to Bach. And I think he, he's going to say Bach is conscious, bacteria not. And as you mentioned, uh, if, if, somebody's not, if somebody's not going to allow dogs or apes, they're certainly not, well, maybe not certainly, but probably pretty certainly not going to allow a snail and definitely not yeah. a bacterium. But you mentioned that at the beginning, I think at the outset, that even you're probably going to write off the consciousness of a bacterium. So, and if I'm putting words into yeah, your mouth, no, that's my inclination, uh, right? I am on the skeptical side, so I don't totally rule out panpsychism. One thing I think we, I wish people did more as philosophers was just have a little more sense of what we might think of as their credence space. Like mm -hmm. you can, invest a little bit of credence in positions that you think are not likely to be true. Well, here is where I was going to go. Oh, if yeah. you wanted to. So, continue. so like panpsychism, I think it's probably not true. It's definitely not where my bet is, but that doesn't mean that I just think it's absurd and I don't think there's any chance that it could be true. So I think, you know, it's healthy. And one of the things that I hope for in my book on weirdness, actually, right, is to do what I, I call disjunctive metaphysics. A disjunction is a series of statements connected by the word or this or that or that or that might be true, right? So like, think about what possibilities there are that are worth a little bit of like, okay, this could be true. Maybe it's not where my money is. But it could be true. Maybe it's worth a 5% credence or a 10% credence. Right? So why not have panpsychism there, say, with, you know, 5% of your credence or something like that? That's how I think about it. The, the reason that I stressed the bacteria and was going to talk more about that is I actually recently just got Twitter, maybe a couple of weeks ago and you were one of the first people I followed and I according to Twitter you recently gave a I'm going to quote a defense of the intrinsic moral value of alien microbes in the solar system should any exist even if they lack sentience yes and I'm curious about <laughs> oh, oh, what that is and what that why you're distinguishing moral value from our uh, microbes. Yeah, right. This started when I was invited by NASA and the Library of Congress to go to Washington, D.C. to meet with 
NASA scientists to talk about the ethics of exploring the solar system. And there are a lot of NASA scientists who think that it's not unlikely that we will find microbial life. Icy moons are the hot thing now, um, not Mars. I mean, maybe Mars is too dry, right? But um, under the surface of the ice of Europa, you know, in the in maybe the warm oceans um, in Europa, right? Maybe. Uh, or other icy moons, right? So there's a lot of scientists who think, hey, you know what, there's a decent chance. There's a pretty good chance. Some scientists think it's quite likely in the next 10 years that we will find microbial life in the solar system. There's also evidence, you know, there's also a whole series of approaches where you look for evidence of life on distant stars, on planets around distant stars, by looking for signs of gases uh, in planetary systems that are likely only to exist if there were life on that planet, right? So that's a whole other research strand, right? But there are people in NASA who think, you know, there's a decent chance we're going to find evidence of microbial life. So one of the things that we're talking about at this meeting was, okay, well, let's say we found microbes on Mars or on Europa. Like, what's our attitude toward that? And some people seem to have a very exploitative attitude. Like, you know, well, great. Let's do some science, right? And, you know, let's, you know, it'd be fascinating to study. We don't have any particular ethical obligations not to disturb them, right? And there'd be, there were some other people who were like, man, if you find life on another planet, let it be. Don't touch it, <laughs> right? If you know Star Trek, right? Kind of the prime directive, right? Don't mess yeah. with life from yeah. another planet, right? Let it be its thing. And I found myself with a moderate version of the latter view, right? Thinking, if there are microbes on another planet, my inclination is to think we should not treat them as casually as we treat the microbes in our own bodies, like when we take, take antibiotics, right? I don't feel any guilt mm -hmm. about taking antibiotics, but man, if we wiped out, if there's one patch of life on Mars and our probe lands there and blasts it and wipes it out, and now life is extinguished on Mars, I'd be like, that's not... I wouldn't want that. That'd be way worse in my mind, ethically, than taking antibiotics. So then, so why is that? It's not because I think microbes are conscious. And it's not because more subtly, right? Some people said, well, they might, might, be, might not be conscious now, but it could be that microbial life would eventually become conscious life. And we've got to give it the chance to evolve, right? That, I mean, that's a reasonable thing to think, right? But I guess I'm not thinking that as the only reason that we might care about microbial life, right? My inclination is to think that there's something intrinsically valuable about life on another planet that's worth respecting. And that is kind of just an intuition. I don't really have an argument for it other than to just kind of state it and invite you to agree. Right? Not everyone's going to agree, but I'm, I think a lot of us, when we think about it, me at least, and some of my friends and maybe you, right, think, you know, there's some pull in that.
Well, here, here's here's one well, way to think about it. Here's here's one way to kind of just massage the intuitions a little bit. I think of this as the distant planet thought experiment. Imagine there's some planet far away from us on the other side of the galactic core. We'll never interact with it. We'll never see it. No connection with it whatsoever. Right? Kind of. What would you hope for from that planet? What would be good for that planet? Is it good if it's a sterile rock? Or would it be better in some way, would the universe somehow be better if that planet had life on it? And I'm inclined to think, yeah, you know, the universe would be better if that planet had life on it. Not hmm. anything to do with our interests or the interests of any conscious organisms, right? Just the universe is richer, more wonderful, more awesome, you know, in virtue of having life on its planets. Awesome. Well, on that note, then I'll just ask one last question for my own curiosity. You are, we started off by talking about what a prolific author are, author you are, and I think the conversation shows what a diverse thinker you are. I'm curious, what are your writing and work habits like that you're able to put out so much? I love to write. You know, a lot of people do other stuff and procrastinate the writing. I like write and procrastinate the other stuff. Like this week, I wrote a new science fiction story. I like I'm supposed to be doing all this other stuff. Like I'm like kind of irresponsible with some of my other stuff, but I really like I wanted to write this story. I think for me, it's like. I want to write. I, I just, it's my priority. I carve out the time to do it and I, I work other things around it. So it's like, it drives me. Um, so it's not a particular habit or schedule or discipline or anything like that. It's kind of the undiscipline. of just like, now nah, I'm going to do what I want to do. So is it, it's not painful for you then? No, I love writing. To write. I love writing. Okay. No. That's amazing. That's great. Uh, well, okay. Well, what a what a great way to end this. Uh, thanks so much for joining me. This was this was really fascinating on all levels. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been a fun chat.